Hey everybody, this is Alex Merced from alexmerced.com and in this video what I'm going to do is talk about uh, money, interest rates, price levels, inflation um, in modern times. Because why you have the discussion about inflation because you know the government's doing a lot of stimulus type stuff, meaning they're spending a lot of money and driving a lot of debt. And oftentimes the concern is that people have a concern over its effect on inflation. So I'm going to toss that word out. I'm going to toss that word out, inflation. Because you talk to different economists, you talk into different contexts, you'll get different meanings of what they mean by the word inflation. Do they mean an inflation of the money supply, meaning you an increase to the money supply versus an increase to the price level? And while these things can sometimes be correlated, where there's more money, prices, higher prices go up, they aren't necessarily always the same thing. Okay? So... Let's just talk about some of these sort of phenomena. And then where does interest rates play into all of this? Where, and the money supply and interest rates don't necessarily always 100% correlate either. It's there's a, because economics is complex. There's a lot of individuals making individual decisions with purpose. So, you know, it's always based on the context in which humans act. So, if you take a look at like a, what a lot of uh, economists who are in the category of Austrian economists look at, they focus a lot on the inflation of the money supply and the effect that it has. Um, in the sense that an increase in the money supply can have an effect on interest rates. And let's think about why that would be. Well, if there is more money, there may be more savings. Okay, um, one way to think about interest rates is think about it like, what the price of borrowing a today dollar in tomorrow dollars. Now, here's the thing. If you had $1 in your pocket, and far as you know, it's the only, it's the last dollar you will ever have. And someone says, hey, can I borrow that dollar? There probably isn't the price that you would give up that dollar for. Like, I can't, I mean, there probably could be a basic. If I said, like, I'm going to give you $3 tomorrow, if you give me that dollar today, you may do it. But if I said, hey, can I just give you a dollar tomorrow versus a dollar today? You're probably like, eh, I'd rather hold on to the dollar. Okay? You might have a different preference. So this is where we get into the whole idea of like time preference where basically it's like, well, there's a variety of things that make me prefer to have this dollar right now. You would have to give me a price that provides me enough value that overcomes all those things like perceived risks, um, desire to consume now, um, all sorts of different things. And then that is essentially what the interest rate is. So if you took a look at it as sort of a, what's the clearing rate between everybody's such preference in the sense that, okay, everybody has money they can borrow. What's sort of the market clearing rate at which sort of money ends up being borrowed at from an aggregate? Okay, so in the sense is, if you had like a million dollars in your pocket and I say, hey, can I borrow a dollar? You probably wouldn't ask me all that much. A dollar doesn't mean that much to you because you have so many dollars. So more money generally can correlate with lower interest rates. It gets a little bit more complicated because it means more money among lenders. You know, if someone who doesn't lend has all the money, then there really isn't an interest rate because that person isn't willing to lend the money. So again, when you start looking at the details, everything gets just a bit more complicated. 
So nowadays with the and then this is where you know you start seeing the base between like sort of hard money and fiat money where basically you know you have hard money where basically you tie it to some sort of like physical commodity so the supply can only increase the commodity and then it's interest rates have a weird thing there because let's say we were like to think about like a gold standard per se and i'm not advocating that i'm just going through the thought process and i can increase the money supply what happened because somebody mined more gold now doesn't necessarily mean the next act they have is to go actually deposit in a bank or spend it or anything so an increase in the money supply wouldn't necessarily translate into a decrease in interest rates because it doesn't necessarily mean the lenders have more money very likely they will because most people would probably want to use some sort of financial intermediary no one likes to carry all their money around with them physically for obvious reasons you can get stolen um robbed you can misplace it um, you know, with a bank, you know, at least you have like, even if something happens, you can, you generally have some sort of recourse where, you, you know, with like fraud protection, things like that. So there's a lot of benefits to have using financial intermediaries in doing, uh, in doing your financial transactions, but not everyone necessarily will. Again, it's not, the point is that it's, is likely, but it's not a certainty. Um, but now when you have generally fiat money run by central banks, yada, yada, the way the works is that an increase in the money supply generally occurs through a purchase of government debt, in a sense, in an open market called open market operations. So the central bank, essentially what they do is they increase the money supply by purchasing debt from directly through financial institutions. So you know directly that when there is an increase in the money supply, there is the, it's the financial institutions are the first people who have it. Now this creates a couple different interesting dynamics. This tightens the correlation between sort of interest rates and um, money supply because you know if the financial institutions get the money right away, then yeah, that's going to have may, may have an impact on interest rates more likely. But also this creates a this means you can have a much more volatility as to what the supply is because it's much easier to just kind of like have a keystroke and say okay, well we just bought a million dollars worth of treasuries. So what is the effect? That banks will be able to lend at lower interest rates. And one factor that comes into like, let's say I'm like, I'm a potential entrepreneur. I have an idea for a business and I put together a business plan. There's a lot of things that factor in to your investments. Part of it's financing. So for example, if you were to buy a car with a 10% 10 rate on your auto loan, your monthly car payment may be X. But if you got that same loan, bought that same car, at a 0% rate, your monthly payment would be significantly less. Okay, so that rate could end up be marginally making the difference on whether a financial investment is viable or not. So suddenly, like that car, um, that you were on the fence of suddenly makes sense. Like I'm gonna go buy the car. Same thing for investments. Maybe suddenly, like that addition to the restaurant suddenly makes more sense than it did before. Um, you know, expanding capacity becomes more makes more sense than it did before. And the the consequence ends up being this is where we start talking about like malinvestment. 
you have a lot of people who just do all these sort of additions that make sense because you have low interest rates but the low interest rates may have just been a, a, a not reflecting sort of like this demand that exists in the economy it may have just reflected like governments increasing the money supply to to soak up debt because again government borrows a lot of money they have huge deficits that means they have a huge need to borrow money so a bunch of treasuries enter the market treasuries are the government's debt and again if you flood the market with something the price is going to go generally would go down because there's more of it so it's worth less and when prices go down of debt instruments interest rates go up so if government's borrowing a lot of money all things being equal absent central bank intervention interest rates are going to go up because basically the price of the debt will go down because you're flooding the market with it okay um, so essentially what the Fed does, or really any central bank does, is they will buy large quantities of the debt to make sure that the interest rate doesn't go up. So essentially whenever the government spends a lot of money, runs deficits, they're kind of forcing the central bank to have to buy up that debt to meet their interest rate targets. Because the, 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 the central bank will generally have its goals, like we want interest rates to be here because for economic reasons. So we see like, you know, they're studying, they're doing research on like, different regions of the country if you take a look at like the different fed banks and they're doing research and saying okay well this is like the business climate and we want interest rates here but then the government messes all that up by borrowing a whole bunch of money or like the, the central government um borrows a bunch of money and starts pushing interest rates up so the fed is kind of like compelled to have to like dump all this money in there that kind of offset that that gives all this excess sort of lending power to financial institutions who are now more willing to lend to other businesses at particular rates that make certain venture event, uh, entries or, or, or business ventures make a lot more sense. They, pop, they, they might have otherwise looked like if the interest rates were at a higher level. So this is also a fact by a factor of policy-wise, they may be targeting too low a rate, too high a rate, because you just don't know what the rate should be. That's why you have market clearing prices. Um, okay, so by nature, government policy is going to government deficit running policy is going to naturally push interest rates higher than they normally would be. So the Fed acts as a counterbalance and injects money in the money supply. But again, it's it's not just that there's more money supply, but it's also like who gets it first. So financial institutions are going to get that money first. So it tends to kind of get injected in the economy in the form of loans. And the reason why like this may be like appetizing to those looking on the outside in is like, well, financial institutions are the ones who get the money first and they lend it out. Well, then they have, they're going to do some underwriting. They're going to assess the loans that they're doing and maybe have an incentive of determining sort of like what are the best um, projects versus like, you know, if we just gave them, if we just injected money supply by, so imagine we did the same thing where we said, hey, you know, every time the Fed wants to inject money to the economy, it just decides to like give it to the homeless. Well, the homeless theoretically might spend money on more random things or, you know, things that don't necessarily have the same kind of economic benefits. So that's sort of like the policy thinkers reasoning being like, yeah, the Fed should give money to the banks because the banks are going to vet who gets the money. And then since they're doing it as part of their business and they can they stand to make more money if they pick wisely, you know, they have the right incentives to figure out where that money goes. And that's not completely untrue. It's not. That's not completely without merit. Um, cool. So we're trying to see, like, okay, you, but the thing is that that may or may not result in an increase in the prices in the, in the price level. 
Because just because there's more money doesn't mean more higher prices. Okay, prices are a reflection of two things, the supply of money and the velocity of money. Okay, so for example, if everyone had five bucks and I said, hey, here's an apple pie, but no one offered any money for my apple pie, the money, the apple pie would still be worth zero dollars even though everyone has five bucks. And if I gave everyone 10 bucks and they still didn't want the apple pie, the price level hasn't necessarily increased for that particular good. Um, so there has to be sort of an intention. There has to be a desire to consume. There has to be preference to consume. Now, we can always think of things that we want. And of course, if we have more money, we might consume more things. But so there has to be an act of, of using resources, uh, act, act of using the resources. On top of that, there has to be sort of uh, a growing scarcity with that consumption. So the reason why if I had 10 apple pies, okay and there was like you know 10 people with a dollar the price of an apple pie might wouldn't well let's say there's 10 people the pot my 10 pies might go for maybe a little over a buck or something because there's enough pies for everybody but if suddenly there was 20 people with money okay then the the price of the pies is going to go up because there's more competition because there's not enough pies to satisfy everybody who wants a pie um okay so there's that scarcity aspect of it and so theoretically when you inject more money in which is typically the case people buy more stuff so there's less of it so you buy more steel so there's a steel you buy whatever now something i want to kind of put out there in thinking about sort of how things work nowadays is is the advent of digital goods in the sense that like if i'm playing like angry birds on my phone i can pay like a dollar to get an extra life but in spending that dollar, I have not necessarily spent any more resources than were being spent. I was already playing Angry Birds. So the electricity, uh, the silicone and the chips on my phone, those were being consumed regardless. Um, the server that's running any kind of remote processes of Angry Birds was being accessed regardless of whether I spent the dollar or not. So the act of spending, and this is the thing with like a lot of different like goods we buy nowadays um this is there's this new sort of new disparity sort of capacity for a lot of these digital goods versus what we pay for them okay so in the sense that like you can increase capacity but when you do there is a point where you do hit capacity like eventually like you know amazon needs to create another or google or microsoft needs to create another data center to service all their cloud clients because you know it can only process and hold so much data but oftentimes when you in when you add capacity the amount that the what that capacity can provide is oftentimes a lot more results in a lot more revenue per se you know because we're spending a lot of money on like netflix and hulu and all these things and these things aren't necessarily like really reducing the you spend i spend a lot i know me personally i would say i spend a lot more money on digital goods than almost anything else nowadays uh, whether it's things for entertainment, um, services, and these own things, these, and then like, so if I were to create like a digital class, a million people in my, my digital class, I, I don't have any scarcity of my time. Um, so we have so much more sort of, I wouldn't say they're not scarce less, but the relationship between sort of like the additional scarcity you create by consuming, 
um, has shifted quite dramatically over the last few years. So during this whole period of time when the government started spending a lot more money, there's also been a huge difference in the way we consume and how, how the level of what we consume digitally. So which is why I don't think like, while you would have predicted back in 2008 that we you know, printed all this money, you would expect that like hyperinflation, death of the dollar. I would say maybe, you know, 10 years earlier, that would have been probably correct because all that extra money would have resulted in buying more physical goods and really drilling down much, you know, basically spending 10 bucks would consume a lot more physical resources than cons consuming 10 bucks can oftentimes do today due to sort of the digital revolution is my point. Um, and then, you know, there's, and it's not just, again, digital goods, digital entertainment, the, the nature of the things that we buy today. And then also when you throw in like cryptocurrencies in there and like, you know, people taking that excess money and spending it into the cryptocurrency market and getting that and that allowing um, that also, again, allows there to be sort of another outlet for like printing. When you print more dollars, if I take the, mil the million dollars that you just printed and go buy like Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin goes up. But that doesn't automatically translate into, again, less physical. Um, I mean, it does mean like there's electricity that goes behind it. But but again, it's not in the same sense of like if I ate all the pies at the local restaurant. OK. Like there's a diff there's a there's a difference between sort of like what's being consumed at the point of consumption. So, again, if I buy a Bitcoin. There is electricity being used by Bitcoin miners to mine the Bitcoin, but that's that consumption exists regardless of that actual point of sale in a sense. Okay, so basically the consumption is perpetual and kind of, it's there. The consumption is there um, whether I'd made the purchase or not. So the additional purchasing power that's entering the market isn't necessarily increasing uh, the consumption those computers are going to be on mining processing transactions anyways but it is pushing up the price of these some well in this case digit dig, like digital uh, scarce digital assets like cryptocurrency you do see an increase in price and potentially this might be where you're seeing a lot of some of that inflation going to um also the other aspect of it is also like that i hadn't gotten to yet is that there's a narrative like if you're talking to like more Keynesian type economists, the narrative that they talk about, because again, they're focusing more on the the increase in the price level, and they're focusing more on the price of the, the, really an increase in the wage level when they think of inflation. So they're saying, well, you know, if you have a tight labor market, then, you know, there's, everyone gets hired and the competition for the people who are left. But the thing is that labor markets are not what they used to be. It's not like you're just hiring from the local pool of people. So if you hired all the local high school kids and there isn't any more to hire, you know, then you have to, you have to kind of offer a little bit more to kind of poach them from the other place. Well, now you can hire people from all over the world. And people from all over the world can get education pretty easily with the Internet nowadays. So that labor market's a much, it's a much wider net. And even if you're in, even just in the country of the U.S., you can hire people from all across the country nowadays. Um, so that labor pool has grown quite a bit that it's hard to have like the same level of like tight labor markets where you're going to see that same level of sort of like wage inflation. And then when you throw in a lot of that money is going to probably be spent on digital goods, you're not going to see the same side. Now, again, this is just merely just trying to state sort of like, okay, hey, things that have kind of actually materially changed. This is not to say suddenly to say that suddenly makes sense for government to spend deficits. That still puts pressure on interest rates. That still puts that still puts pressure on the Fed to and, and other central banks to like 
print uh increase the money supply and then you know injecting this constant ability this constant liquidity into the financial system does create sort of like differences in how we make decisions thus the misallocations of capital can still occur even if you don't see essentially an increase in the wage level and tight labor markets like even if labor markets could be pushed like you can push the level of employment like let's say on a national level you can push it pretty high and still not necessarily see inflation because people can hire people from abroad or and then again they don't even have to and the thing is when you hire people from abroad you don't have to actually bring them to the country they can work remotely so a lot of these new dynamics in the labor market make it where like the labor market can, can actually be pretty tight without seeing price increases you can increase the money supply and see r really high consumption and high gdp without necessarily the price level increasing but it doesn't necessarily mean that you know there's misallocations going on in the underlying economy that we aren't doing making some we aren't building that puzzle the right way that won't necessarily be a problem later um but how does that look like what does that turn into well i mean you know if you could perfectly predict bubbles you know you you know everyone your life would be a lot easier wouldn't it but the point is, like, I do think a lot of, like, the people, like, when you say it, then say, oh, look, you know, we're going to print $2 trillion. We're going to see a bunch of inflation. You probably, you may not. You may not for, for, for actually decent reasons. Doesn't necessarily mean it's good policy, though. Doesn't mean there isn't consequences. Um, and even, even if there wasn't, like, economic consequences in the sense of inflation and uh, misallocation, let's say those two things were off the table, when the government spends more, it tends to take more authority over more parts of our lives, and that tends to make things more less flexible in our lives, and it's really hard to get claw that back. So even if the government had the financial ability to really d truly do whatever it wanted, that would also generally also come together with costs to actual like our our flexibility, our adaptability, because we're gonna have all these like sort of really rigid processes in place that are very unchangeable, unmoldable, because if you know anything about like sort of, when a government's put something in place, it's, it's not gonna change anytime soon. You're kind of stuck with it. Um, so there are other considerations and things to care about. But, the, but I do think it's interesting to think of like digital goods, global labor markets, and how these things do sort of have to change, should change the way we think about traditional like sort of how price levels should move. Because you're no longer competing against sort of the market for like local physical goods and local labor it's you're you're you, and then you know it's you you have digital goods you know which again they're not perfectly unscarce there's a, there's a level of electricity that's underneath all of that but again the price of the electricity versus the price of these digital goods there's a huge disparity there that that you can almost make it feel like there's no scarcity um yeah and, uh, the, and then again, there's innovations in electricity, innovations in computing that occur constantly. Like in the last 10 years, if I think about like how much this has changed as far as being able to store memory and process computer processing power and how that's quickly that capacity is increasing. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting and it does have effect on what you would think in prices. So I just want to put that out there because I just feel like everyone keeps thinking about things sort of like the old way um thinking very much in terms of sort of like non-digital goods and that like uh, and the and non a non-global uh basically a labor market that has to be pulled in from sort of like locally 
Um, but when you think about like remote labor and digital goods, it really does change the calculus quite a bit. Um, and I don't think that's considered enough. My name is Alex Merced from alexmerced.com. Have a great day and enjoy.